Well, thank you, praise team. Thank you for leading us so well. You know, the praise is only good because our God is infinitely good and worthy of praise. And it's a, it's a joy to worship with you and sing praises to God each Sunday. And thank you, Casey, for leading us even silently this morning. We pray for Casey as well as his vocal cords heal up. And uh, hopefully that will be quick as well. But yes, we do continue to pray for our pastor and thankful that he is home and healing and pray for strength uh, for him over the, the coming days. And we miss him today. Church, this morning, we're going to be in 2 Samuel again in chapters 8 and 9. You can go ahead and be turning there. Um, this, uh, this study through the book of, of 2 Samuel has been, uh, has been quite interesting and we've seen some, uh, some ups and downs along the way, and we'll continue to see that throughout the book. You know, last week, we kind of hit one of those, those pinnacle moments in Scripture, uh, scripture. One, of those, one of those great chapters, great passages where, where God makes a promise to his king that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. Now, I know it's not a spoiler to say that's not Solomon. That is going to be King Jesus. And we want to always point to him. We want to see him glorious and lifted up, even in passages like this. Today we'll be in, in chapters 8 and 9, where accounts in King David's life, I pray this morning, will help us focus in on the King of Kings. Now, I'm going to confess this morning, one of the sad realities of my life, I have a lot of faults. I have a lot of things that I'm not good at, but one of those that makes the top of the list is I am a horrible photographer. Can't do it, can't do it. I don't understand it. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I've been to some of the most amazing places on the planet. I mean, for, for real, I mean, I, I have, uh, I've witnessed God's creativity at the Grand Canyon. I have been to the, the rim of an active volcano while it was literally shooting lava into the air. I've been to the Hagia Sophia in Turkey, a 1,500-year-old church where one of the great church fathers used to preach. And I have nothing to show for it in the way of pictures. If you'd like to see some good photos of those places, do not ask me. It's sad. Uh, my photographic memories are pathetic. Many of the, the pictures I've taken over the years will leave you wondering, what was he even focusing on? <laughs> and if you don't believe me, I can provide the evidence. Uh, you know, the photos simply don't do justice to the real thing. And maybe you're like me. That, that can often be the case. We, we show, we show uh, photos of something and we say, but, but it's... it's it's nothing like the real thing. It just doesn't do justice to the real thing. Well, church, something similar is often true in the scriptures. When we look at, at men like King David, we look at these, these heroes of the faith, really, if you want to put it that way, and yet they, they don't do justice to the one that they're ultimately pointing us to. You know, even in the best moments of King David's life and, and his reign, He's still flawed, isn't he? He's still a sinner. He's still in need of grace. You see, at his best, in his best moments, King David serves as an out-of-focus 
reflection of the true king, Jesus. And church, I hope we see that in the chapters we're gonna look at today in 2 Samuel. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word together? I'm gonna begin in chapter eight, just reading verses one through 15. The word of God says this. Now, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line he spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Now David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus and, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoils of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. In verse 15, so David reigned all, uh, over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Amen. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful this morning that we can see you clearly at work in your word. Even when we read a story about the victories of a man like King David, we ultimately see the victories of a God like you. And Father, I pray that we would see you clearly this morning and that we would make much of Jesus in our worship, in the proclamation of your word. And Father, in the, in the posture of our hearts as we seek to draw near to you and to give praise and worship to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Church, you can be seated this morning. Uh, chapter eight, well, uh, I mean, there's a lot of uh, battling going on, right? And, and uh, what I would need to say right up front is chapter eight 
isn't really in chronological order with uh, what we've been seeing so far. Uh, for, for example, we just read here in chapter eight about all these battles that David fought and all these battles that, that David won. But if you recall, just back to last week, as Pastor Nate was preaching in chapter seven, chapter seven began in verse one by saying, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Well, that's true. It's absolutely true, but chapter eight probably comes chronologically a little bit before that, simply showing how God is at work to fulfill his promises that he's made to King Davis, all these promises of chapter seven. But what I want us to focus in on and think about this morning is that what's begun in the reign of King David gets ultimately fulfilled in that greater son of David Jesus. That's where we want to put our focus this morning. So let's focus in on the true king this morning and see how this account of David points us ultimately to King Jesus. And the first thing we need to see is, or the first thing we see is the need to trust in the presence and victory of our king. Now, the first 14 verses that we just read a moment ago here of chapter eight, they recount battles and they recount victories that King David engaged in. And the way it's organized is meant to tell us something. It it may be not obvious at at just a first glance or a first reading, but the way it's organized is meant to display complete and absolute victory over his enemies in every direction, from on, on every side, for, for example, let me, let me kind of spell it out for us. David, we're told he defeats the Philistines, verse one says. They're the people off to the west. And then it talks about his defeat of Moab to the east in verse two. And then Zobah in Damascus and Aram and Ammon to the north in verses three through 12. And then Edom and Amalek to the south in verses 13 and 14. The Lord indeed gave victory to David everywhere he went. But no, make no mistake, it was the Lord who gave victory on every side, in every direction. You see, David's victory, when, when it's done according to the Lord's will, it, it doesn't matter how powerful his enemy is. It doesn't matter how big that army is that he's facing. All that matters is one simple truth the presence of the Lord with him. That makes all the difference. You know, church, it's often said that uh, there are no guarantees in life except what? Death and taxes. And we feel that, don't we? We're not real happy thinking about that. It can often discourage me when I think about especially the taxes part. But you know, when we talk about God's children, those who, who are faithfully following him, that just simply isn't true. It's not, a, it's not a true statement, is it? Notice twice in the passage, in verse six and in verse 15, we're told, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. You see, here's my point. One of the certainties in King David's life was the presence of God and the victory of God over all of his enemies when David walked according to the promises of God. Do you notice that? Like he, he's not always victorious. There's, there's, there's struggles along the way. 
And he has stumbles along the way, but he is always victorious when he walks in the presence of the Lord in accordance with the promises of the Lord. And it's just such a, a great reminder to us because while, while people often tell us, you know, no certainties but death and taxes, that's, that's not true for us either because we have the reality of the promises of God. We too have the promise of his presence. You, you might recall just before Jesus ascended back to heaven after his resurrection, uh, our king gave us a great promise in Matthew 28, 20. He says, behold, I am with you always. Not for a week or two. Not, not until you get your act together and you can do things on your own, but he says, I'm with you always until the end of the age. And that's about how long we're gonna need him to be with us always. But it's not just his presence, the promise of his presence. We also have the promise of his victory. Our king has already defeated sin. He has already defeated death. He has already defeated Satan through his own death and resurrection. He gives us assurance and confidence in these promises that he gives to us. So church, the question I have for us this morning is where is your hope and your trust this morning? Where, where is your trust and your hope? I, I know at times we can, we can struggle to feel his presence with us and, and we look around and we kind of look within us and it can be a real hard time. We struggle to, to rest in him, to rest in his victory, the finished work of, of Jesus on the cross. We, it can be difficult sometimes to rest in those things because, you know, we still battle with sin in our lives, don't we? It's there, we, we know it's there, we feel it. We continue to feel the pain of death all around us more frequently than we would like. We fight on against the snares of Satan in our lives. Oh yes, the, the battles continue, don't they? But you know what? That war is over. The war is finished because church, our king said it is finished and he sat down at the right hand of the father and he promises he promises you and me his very presence with us now and forever so that his victory becomes our victory and his joy becomes our joy and his life becomes our life and ultimately his future with the Father becomes our future. Again, is your trust in him? Is your hope in Christ today? Well, if so, we need to see secondly this morning, we need to live according to the justice and righteousness of our king. We need to live according to the justice and righteousness of our king. Earlier this year, we spent a lot of time looking at the, the life and the reign of, uh, of King Saul. And what we saw, if I could kind of boil it down, is simply this. We saw a continuation of the period of the judges. I know they had a king now, but we just saw a continuation of the judges. Here's what I mean. Everyone continued to do what was right in their own eyes. You see, that was the MO of King Saul. He did what seemed best to him. He did what felt right to him. But when we fast forward to King David, at least in his better moments, King David broke this trend. Now keep in mind how verse 15 begins. It says, so David reigned 
over all Israel. In other words, he's the man now. He's in complete control at this point. He has all the power. He has all the authority. He can command. He can do whatever he pleases. And trust me, we're going to see that when we see his great fall in chapter 11. He can do whatever he wants at this point. But verse 15 continues by saying not just that David reigned over all Israel. It says he administered justice and equity to all his people. Or as those Hebrew words are often translated, he administered justice and righteousness to all his people. Now, why did he do this? Why? Well, he could have done anything he wanted. He could have acted any way he wanted. A lot of the kings after him will do exactly that. Why? Why does he administer justice and righteousness? Well, basically because he's God's king. And he wants to reflect the character of his king. Reflect the character of his God. You know, we see this in Isaiah 33, verse 5, where it says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And then a little bit later in Jeremiah 9, 24, God says, Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, knows what about him? That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. But now listen to this. One little, one little statement after he says all of that about himself. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. And then he says, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our God delights in justice. He delights in righteousness and he delights in it personally and always acts according to justice and righteousness. But he also delights in those things in his people as well. He delights in us when we reflect and when we do justice and righteousness. You know, we're often told King David was a man after God's own heart, and, and no doubt there's, there's truth in that. No doubt uh, that was the, the general trajectory uh, of his life. Uh, I don't dispute that in any way, but what we do know is David was still a man who stumbled. He was still a man who sinned all along the way in his attempt to live, in, to live according to that perfect standard of justice and righteousness. He, he was just never going to meet that standard. You see, even King David needed the grace of that future king, that future son of David, who does it perfectly. You see, the true king that we're talking about is the king of Isaiah 9, verse 7. When the prophecy of, of Jesus talks about this true king who, who of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, how? With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He does it perfectly. He is the example. He is the, the model of justice and righteousness. Now let's get real for a moment. Let's just think about, think about ourselves. We're not King David, are we? We're not even royal sons of King David. We're certainly not King Jesus, the one who is completely just and completely righteous. 
I mean, we just know we're gonna stumble in those areas, don't we? We don't need to, we don't need to harp on that. But in the words of theologian Dale Ralph Davis, we ought to be planting kingdom righteousness in our own present plots in whatever relationships or capacities we do have. Church, this is the ideal of what it means to be kingdom people. This is the ideal of what it looks like to follow after King Jesus, planting kingdom righteousness. So I want us to ask ourselves this morning a couple of really important questions. The first one, a little bit easier. What relationships or areas of influence do you have in your life right now? That's gonna be your family relationships. You're gonna have work relationships, maybe, maybe among your friends, among your neighbors, among your brothers and sisters here in this church. What relationships or areas of influence do you have in your life right now? And then on top of that, what would it look like? I want you to really think about this. What would it look like to live out kingdom justice and kingdom righteousness in those areas of life? What's that gonna look like in your life? Maybe it looks like uh, doing some self-evaluation about how we steward our time, our talents, our resources so, so we can better steward those things to minister well to others. We might have to reevaluate those things. Maybe it looks like boldly speaking truth and in love into the lives of those we have relationship with. Maybe it even looks like repenting of sin and striving to better model Christ's righteousness before others. And maybe the spirit would lay some other things on your heart this morning. Church, what does it look like for us to live out kingdom justice and righteousness it's one thing to know that God is just, that Jesus is holy, righteous, and that we receive his righteousness when we place our faith and trust in him. That's glorious. That's good news. That is extravagant grace. But righteousness doesn't stop there. His righteousness is imputed to us, but we're also called to live out that righteousness in the world around us. What does it look like? to live out kingdom justice and righteousness. Well, I think it certainly looks like our final point this morning. Extend to others the mercy and grace of our king. Extend to others the mercy and grace of our king. Now we're gonna make sort of a transition here out of chapter eight into chapter nine and, and look at, I just wanna read verses one through seven if I can to give you the sense of what's happening here in chapter nine. Uh, beginning in verse one, Here's what the text says. And David says, or said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And David said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him. And Ziba, Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, 
He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Grace, kindness of King David. Chapter nine, though, it kind of seems out of left field after we leave chapter eight and in all of this warring and all of this subduing of people. What, what exactly is going on here? Well, it takes us back a little ways. It takes us back to 1 Samuel chapter 20 in verse 15, where Saul's son, Jonathan, and, and David are in this really intense and intimate conversation together. And Jonathan says to David, because he knows what's coming, he, he knows what the Lord has declared. Jonathan says to David, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so after that statement and in that moment, Jonathan and David, they covenant together. David makes a promise to Jonathan that, that he, will, he will stand by this request. Now, Jonathan's gone. David could have easily chosen to forget or chosen to ignore the promise made to Jonathan. I mean, this is the sort of thing that people do all the time, right? You think anybody remembers what I said? Maybe I don't really have to follow through. Maybe, maybe I'm wiser now. That, maybe that's not the, the, the way forward. In kind of a humorous way, looking to Dale Ralph Davis again, he shares an illustration of this from the life of uh, President Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt uh, made a speech in Pittsburgh in 1932 where he was advocating restraint in government spending. Now, don't laugh. We've heard this before. I know, but that's not, that's not the punchline, okay? Uh, he, he makes this speech advocating for restraint in government spending, but four years later, he changes his mind. He has a different opinion of things and it turns out he wants to increase government spending. And so he turns to one of his advisors and he asks him, how do I do this? How do I make this about face? How do I change my mind without seeming two-faced? That's a good question, I suppose. The, author, or the advisor gave him this advice. He simply said, deny you made a speech in Pittsburgh in 1932. I suppose that's an option. David could have done that with this promise he made to, Dave, or to Jonathan because, I mean, he made that promise like 15 or 20 years earlier. Nobody knows it and Jonathan is gone. But David doesn't do that. That's not how he acts. He sought out a descendant of King Saul who happens to be Jonathan's handicapped son, Mephibosheth. We saw a little bit about him earlier, just kind of introduced to him. But he shows him, we're told here in the text, uh, kindness. Now, I know that seems like a very simple word. We might, we might think, you know, we show kindness to a lot of people. But, but in Hebrew, that's actually a, a more intense word. 
In, in Hebrew, it's the word hesed, a very important word in that language. It's a little bit hard to translate. It maybe maybe we'll, we'll define it somewhere in the realm of active, the active part is important, active loving kindness. Not just, you know, having warm, fuzzy feelings for somebody, but active loving kindness. And so here's what it looks like in verse seven, if you look back down in the text. First, it looks like protection. David says, do not fear to Mephibosheth, for I will show you kindness, or, or has said, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Uh, looks like protection. It also looks like provision. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. It's protection. It's provision. Oh, in church, it's, it's position. It looks like position. He, David says, and you shall eat at my table always. In fact, if you look down a couple verses into verse 11, it says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table, listen to this, like one of the king's sons. That is loving kindness. That is hesed. That is the kindness of the Lord. David here, he displays unexpected grace because that's the character of David's God. Now, make no mistake, what David does is impressive here, but the greatest display of that hesed, that, that active loving kindness that has ever been on display in the world is, of course, the cross of our Savior. It was love. It was kindness. But church, it took action. It was the action of Jesus that led him all the way to the cross, bearing the weight of our sin upon himself. I mean, listen to it. I'll, I'll give it to you in one verse, Romans 5.10. It says of the Christian, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. I don't know that Mephibosheth was David's enemy. He was of the wrong family, of course. But scripture says of us, church, not while, while we were doing our best to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, while we were generally good people in the best moment of our life. No, it doesn't say that. It says while we were enemies, while we were in rebellion, against the Lord, while we were living for self, while we were making idols of everything but Jesus in our lives, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus' death in our place, it gives us the, those same things we see David doing with Mephibosheth. He gives us protection. We don't have to, to fear enslavement to sin any longer. We don't have to fear that second death that is the ultimate death any longer. 1 Corinthians 15 makes that clear to us. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? He gives us protection. Jesus' death in our place gives us provision. He restores that relationship with the Father that, that we've been in rebellion against apart from repentance and faith. And not only that, church, he gives us position in a, in a way that simply blows my mind every time I think about it and every time I read it in scripture. Faith in Christ makes us co-heirs with Christ. 
And if you don't fully grasp what that means to be a co-heir with Christ, congratulations, you're just like the rest of us. But it'll be more glorious and magnificent than we can imagine. I guarantee you that he makes us co-heirs with Christ. Hey, church, if, if our king has shown such loving kindness to us while we were still enemies, should we not extend mercy and grace to others as well? Whether enemies or not, should we not extend mercy and grace to others? You know, the early Christian church, I know they had their, their share of flaws and their share of weaknesses as well, but I've always been impressed by, by a statement that was uh, made by uh, Tertullian in the second century when he's given his testimony of the, the early church back there in, the, in the, the second century. Really, it hasn't been that long that the church has been in existence, and in his his work, uh, Apology, is what it's called, he defends the Christians saying, it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. A love so noble that causes a lost pagan world around them to say, we may not fully understand what's going on here, but see how they love one another. I chalk this one up to church goals, right? Personal goals and church goals. May visitors to our church, may, may the city and the people of Amarillo say of us, even if they don't understand why, even if they don't, they don't quite believe the way that we do, even if they don't place their faith in Jesus at all, may the people of Amarillo and any visitors to our church at the very least say, See how they love one another. See how they extend mercy and grace to one another. They don't look like the world around them. They say they've met with Jesus. Maybe it's true. And more than that, more than that though, maybe I should say in addition to that, not just see how they love one another, but may they also say, see how they love us. See how they love us. And why not, church? Why not? Through Christ, we have a sure hope for eternity. We have a sure and confident hope. Through Christ, we have a model, the perfect model for living out that kingdom justice and kingdom righteousness all around us. It means we have to actively do something, but we have that model right before us. And we have every reason to extend the extravagant mercy and grace of Jesus to others. Why? Because while we were enemies, he did that for us. You know, there's a, there's a, a mix of, uh, of people in this room anytime we gather together. And I know I'm speaking mostly to the church. I'm speaking mostly to those who are in Christ this morning. Can I challenge us with these words today? Can I challenge us to put into practice, based on, on the hope and confidence we have in Christ, Put into practice that loving kindness of the Lord. When we leave here today amongst one another, but also out in our city, would you, would you talk to a lost person this week? Would you engage your neighbors this week and tell them, look, uh, you know, 
because of what Jesus has done for me, I love you. I don't know you well probably, but I love you. And invite them to come to a church that by God's grace will love them also. For others, maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've not yet received that mercy and grace of Jesus. You've never trusted in him. You've never, you've never repented, turned away from sin, stepped off the throne of your life and let Jesus, King Jesus, have his rightful place. I have the best news ever for you. This can be the day that you enter into that loving kindness relationship with the Lord through salvation. We're gonna sing a, a song of, of response here in just a moment. I call it a song of response because every one of us needs to respond because we've engaged the word of God this morning. Whatever your response is though, don't delay. Don't delay. As we sing, respond to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're just in awe of your, of your incredible love for us this morning. And we don't begin to understand it, how you could love someone like us. We don't begin to understand how you could die for enemies. Oh, but Jesus, we're thankful you did. And Father, I pray that, that what Jesus has done for us would impact our lives in a, in a no going back, transformative way so that we would go share the mercy and grace of Jesus with others. Father, we rest in the confidence that we have in your promises toward us. Help us to live out justice and righteousness even here in our own community. And we know that at the very least that includes telling them how they can be reconciled to the Savior. Father, as we sing, would you have your way in our hearts and lives? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Church, would you stand as we sing?